Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of The Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Ron Brownstein, senior editor at The Atlantic. Welcome one and all. And Ron, thank you so much for joining us. A couple of weeks ago, Bill linked to your piece in The Atlantic about why Democrats are losing the culture wars. And we've all read it and think it's so interesting. So that's where we would like to begin this week. You are saying, if I read you correctly, that this is a moment to reconsider the wisdom of Bill Clinton. Well, yeah. I, first of all, thanks for having me. Although if you had told me in advance that it was a civil conversation, I'm not sure. Ron. We don't want that getting out. You know, I, I'm not sure I remember how to do that. <laughs> uh, look, I think clearly for the last two presidential cycles, the only time Bill Clinton has been raised and his experience has been raised in the Democratic uh, nominating contests uh, has been to repudiate it. I mean, you know, we've kind of had kind of an apology tour from both Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, and to some extent from others, about supporting various elements of the Clinton agenda, which have been seen in retrospect as essentially pandering to white racism, as well as kind of being frightened by the shadows of the anti-government arguments of the Reagan era of the 1980s uh, in an administration where one of our fellow guests served very admirably. So that was kind of the baseline. And, and it was reflected, I think, institutionally as well, the, the Democratic Leadership Council, which was the place where many of those ideas were initially formulated, closed shop in 2011, largely because there was less appetite in the party for internal criticism at a moment when the Republican Party appeared to be careening toward the right and posing a more existential threat to things Democrats believed in. And, you know, essentially the whole centrist critique of vanguard liberalism was marginalized uh, in the party. And I think what you are seeing now is a kind of um, resurrection of some of those ideas. Now, the differences are enormous. I mean, the differences in terms of the the composition of, of the coalition, the framework of the debate, the institutional strength behind this critique. I mean, right now we're hearing it mostly from an assortment of strategists and writers. You don't have the big core of elected officials that you had in the 80s and 90s. You don't have any document, not just because he's here, that is as comprehensive a critique as Bill Galston and Elaine K. Mark produced in 1989. In fact, I am struck by how few of the people making the critique now have even read that. But nonetheless, I think for the first time since the Clinton era, you are getting a more serious debate in the Democratic Party about whether there was some wisdom in his efforts to find a bridge between traditional Democratic beliefs and the views of more culturally conservative voters. And I think that is a debate that is in its you know, kind of opening stages now, uh, but is certainly going to get much louder if uh, 22 goes as badly as it might and historically often has for the party holding the White House. So can you run through some of the numbers? You say in your piece that white Americans without a college degree 
they used to be about three fifths of the voters, yeah. uh, and now it's only two fifths. And then you talk about some of the other constituency groups of the Democratic Party. So, can you fill us in on that right. a little bit? Right. So one of the one of the big changes, you know, over this era, when when Bill and Elaine wrote the Politics of Evasion, and when Clinton and Carville and Stan Greenberg and Bill and Bruce Reed and the others formulated the Third Way vision. I think clearly whites without a college degree and, and rural whites and non-college and rural whites in the South, those were the principal targets for the messaging that they were developing. And at that time, it made a lot of sense because those voters were over 60% of the total electorate and were even 60% of the Democratic electorate. But over 25 years of demographic change and political realignment, we have a very different world today. And at this point, depending on your data source, the census puts whites without a college degree at now down from about 62, 63% in the early 90s to about 40% of the total electorate. I know Catalyst, the Democratic targeting firm and others put it slightly above that. But whatever number you start with, Mona, they all show the same trajectory, which is that non-college whites shrink as a share of the electorate two to three percentage points over each presidential cycle. And they are falling not as fast, but they are also falling even in the Rust Belt states where they are more numerous. I mean, there's no state, I I don't believe, where non-college whites are not significantly a smaller share of the electorate than they were in 1992. And college whites have grown slightly over that period. And the big growth has been among people of color. So now you have a democratic coalition where in the 90s, it might have been roughly 60% non-college whites and maybe evenly divided among college whites and minorities for the rest. Now, it's roughly 40% of Democratic voters are people of color, 30% are non-college whites, and 30% roughly are college whites. And given that, I would think, uh, you know, as I said in the piece, I think this critique probably would not have resonated as much if the only issue was whether you know, what's seen as excessive cultural liberalism was driving away non-college whites because Democrats face the reality that competing against a Trump-style GOP that is appealing so directly to the cultural and racial grievances of those voters, there's probably limited room for recovery among them. I think what is really giving an audience to the kind of neo-DLC, neo-politics of evasion arguments is the fear that the policies that people are worried about are not only alienating non-college whites, they're also starting to alienate some non-college people of color, particularly men, particularly Hispanics. And I think it's that fear that really kind of moves this from what would have been kind of shouting from the bleachers into something that has the potential to actually have some impact in the party. Oh, and on that note, I think we have to bring in Linda Chavez, an expert on all matters involving the Hispanic vote. And Linda, the Democrats told themselves and told the rest of us for many years that this rising new generation of majority-minority voters was going to be the golden ticket for the Democratic Party. And one of the things that's becoming more more clear is that certainly for Hispanics, and even as Ron said, to some degree among African-American voters, the message of defund the police is incredibly alienating. Absolutely. This is not a new phenomenon. These are not issues that have appealed specifically to Hispanics, because Hispanics, first of all, even if they are not college educated, their children are much more likely 
to go to college than in previous generations. And they are aspiring, not just middle class, they're aspiring entrepreneurs. They identify very much with the opportunity that the United States gives. And so messages that make it seem like the Democratic Party is not friendly to small business, that the Democratic Party is hostile to being tough on crime, is hostile to police funding, etc. All of those messages are going to backfire when it comes to the Hispanic community. And we saw it. There was a surprisingly high percentage, particularly among Mexican-American men in places like the border area of Texas, for Donald Trump. And this is supporting a candidate who, to all intents and purposes, is one of the most anti-Hispanic presidents we've ever had. He's been very hostile to that group. He tarred Mexicans writ large as rapists. Uh, He wasn't even talking about necessarily illegal immigrants. He basically said Mexico, they're sending us rapists and others. So you would think that he would not get much support, but the support for Donald Trump rivals that of support among Mexican-Americans for Ronald Reagan, for George W. Bush, who were much, much more friendly to the Hispanic community. So if the idea was, we think we're going to adopt these progressive views and it's going to help us with the Hispanic population, it clearly backfired. And I think there needs to be some rethinking, but if they have a hope of winning the White House again, I think they have to figure out a way to reach out to people of color who are not necessarily all bought into the the squad's agenda and uh, reach out to people in ways that make sense for their own lives by promoting education, by promoting work, by promoting tax breaks that make sense and don't necessarily favor the rich. But they've got to figure out a new agenda. Linda, have we misread the Hispanic vote on the topic of immigration specifically? Yes and no. First of all, if you think that somehow being very liberal on immigration is going to win you more Hispanic votes, immigration is not high on the list of voting issues for most Hispanic voters. They don't like the kind of xenophobic nativist approach that the Trump people took. But it's also true that when you look at the impacts of immigration on workers, what you find is that it is not necessarily whites without a college degree who suffer, you know, any kind of depression in wages or stagnation of wages because of an influx of new immigrant workers. It is actually immigrants from a previous cohort and, in the case of Texas, Mexican-Americans who are native-born who don't have a college degree. So the competition is within the ethnic group more than it is between, say, a Mexican immigrant and the less-than-college-educated white workers. And so that's another reason why they may not be overly enthusiastic about seeing uh, huge influxes of people who are going to compete. You know, if you're a native-born Mexican-American house painter like my dad was, you might not welcome the idea that somebody's going to come in and underbid you. On the other hand, it may provide an opportunity for you to start your own painting company and be able to hire those people uh, to do the job and, and you run the company. So it, it's a mixed bag, but it's certainly not the winning ticket. 
Bill Galston, I'm holding off until the very end to come to you. You are the expert on this, and you're quoted many times in Ron's article. But first, I'm going to, going to invite Damon Linker to give his views on this. The Democrats have been getting this advice from people like David Shore and Stanley Greenberg and James Carville. In fact, we've quoted them quite often on this program. But what's your sense of whether this is sort of a boutique point of view that's promoted by Bill Galston and a few other intellectuals, but not really catching on with the Democrats in power? Well, I think there is a dichotomy between what the institutional Democratic Party says internally to itself versus what it says externally to voters and especially activists who kind of are around the periphery of the party. And there is a hesitance, I think, uh, among people who run the party to say out loud too much that they agree with this analysis because the the activists who spend a lot of their time on Twitter and other social media platforms very much don't like this message and really want to keep trying to push the party to the left. And they'll make a big stink about it if they think that the party is totally ready to go the other way. But I do think there's some signs in reporting that's been done in various outlets that internally the party does their own polling. They know what's happening. They realize that non-college age Hispanic voters seem to be drifting away from the party and, you know, not en masse, but enough of them that it could make the decisive difference, both at the presidential electoral college level and especially in the Senate. And so these things matter. I mean, from my point of view, the thing that was most interesting about this very uh, stimulating piece from Ron is uh, just the way that it builds on a story that I've been hearing and telling in my own writing uh, for many years, which is this story that Bill Galston is very much a major player in, that basically Ronald Reagan wins the presidency in 1980. For a couple of election cycles, the Democrats sort of keep running into the wall of the Reagan revolution and trying to sell kind of a version of next-generation great society ambitions and lose in 84 very, very badly, but then again also in 88. And in the wake of that, the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Council, really has influence in the party. Bill Clinton is very much influenced by their kind of arguments, adopts them as his own, and he ends up triumphing in 92. And ever since then, as the story goes, the Democrats have sort of been the way the left calls them neoliberal. And the left wing of the party has been sort of grumbling about this ever since and waiting for the pendulum to swing back. When is it going to happen? First, there was hope about when Obama ran in 08, that he would represent a swinging of the pendulum back and the, the Affordable Care Act would be kind of the first initiative to do this. And it didn't really happen because that bill didn't have a public option, which meant it was lukewarm. And then it pulled badly for a while. And the Democrats did very badly in the midterm elections of 2010. And then Bernie Sanders comes on. And that means, yes, the party's going to swing back to the left finally. And he ends up not winning. 
Hillary Clinton wins with a more lukewarm platform and then loses to Trump. And then all the candidates in 2020 run to unseat Trump and all of them are to the left except for Joe Biden. And Joe Biden is the one who wins the nomination. So this has been an ongoing story. And the interesting thing about all of the people you mentioned, Mona, and then of course the way Ron very effectively synthesizes all of it in his piece is it makes you wonder wow, so we really are still in the Reagan era. Like this has not changed in a fundamental way that the left wing of the Democratic Party still wants to move beyond this shift that happened in 1980, where the whole electorate on a certain cluster of issues having to do with kind of size of government, tax rates, crime, kind of muscular defense. On these kinds of issues, the Democrats still have not successfully moved the pendulum back. And it makes you wonder, is this ever going to happen? Or instead, with so much in our time and at our moment sort of recapitulating themes of the late 70s with high inflation, crime surging, questions about whether Biden is sufficiently tough on foreign policy, are we setting up a kind of second iteration for a kind of next generation Reagan revolution who might move things even further to the right. That's a different way of thinking, not so much about Trump personally, because he's so execrable and has so many deficits of his own that are unique to him, but the whole shifting of the Republican Party that we've seen since Trump came around and seems to raise that question, at least in my mind. Now I'll shut up after all of that sort of free associating, <laughs> but uh, it leaves a lot of stuff on the table. Yes. Thank you for that. Okay. Bill Galston, some critics on the left might say, well, you know, Bill Galston may have had a point in 1989 or, you know, in the early part of that decade after Dukakis lost and the party needed to recenter itself. But since then, Barack Obama won. Uh, he ran on a fairly liberal platform. You could say, well, that was the, the financial crisis and the unpopularity of the George W. Bush administration, so that's not such a big deal. But then he won re-election. What's your response, Bill, to the argument that the Obama years contradict your analysis of the party's trajectory? <laughs> well, First of all, on a personal note, I guess I've now been around so long that I've become an object of historical inquiry. <laughs> we all aspire to that, Bill. <laughs> I have to say, uh, I smiled when I read uh, young Mr. Shore's comments about the itinerary that he's gone through. I feel a bit like an old tie that has been in the closet for so long that it might just be fashionable to drag me out and put me on again. Uh, look, I'll get to your Obama question. Okay. But first to engage Ron a little bit and merely to mention a couple of things that he knows as well as I do. Uh, the share of white working class voters as a share of both the electorate and the Democratic Party have gone down. No question about that, but they are strategically located and overrepresented in the states that could go either way. And in this era where the number of swing states has 
been reduced very significantly from two generations ago, these are the states that make the difference between victory and defeat. That's point number one. Point number two, the difference between Hillary Clinton's 48.3% of the vote and Joe Biden's 51.3 was almost entirely the result of the fact that Joe Biden did five percentage points better among white working class voters than Hillary Clinton did. The numbers are not dazzling. Clinton got 28% and Biden got 33%. But if he'd gotten 28%, Donald Trump would still be in the White House. So this is critical. And uh, I don't think Democrats should uh, forget that. Secondly, Democrats rethinking to the extent that it's occurring is not simply the result of shifts among Hispanics. The real point is that the shifts that made the difference between Biden's victory in Virginia in 2020 and Terry McAuliffe's defeat in 2021 occurred as much among suburban swing voters as they did among rural voters in the southwest portion of the state. And that really got Democrats' attention. And it's about time because those suburban swing voters were moved more than anything else by the schools issue, uh, which Youngkin both elevated and exploited. That was not an economic issue. That was a cultural issue where Democrats were seen as standing for a whole bunch of policies with regard to schools that middle-of-the-road voters simply could not accept. Uh, Democrats on that same day also took note of the fact that a lot of the people, including African-American candidates who ran on centrist policies concerning policing rather than some version of defund the police, did very well. And the people who took more left positions with just a couple of exceptions went down to defeat. The Minneapolis charter change that would have written into law, in effect, some version of defund the police at ground zero, George Floyd Central, that went down to defeat. And African-Americans disapproved of it by a greater margin than whites did in Minneapolis. So it is not simply a shift among Hispanics, although that is extremely significant because Hispanics bulk so large in the electorate. There's a mountain of post-2020 evidence to the effect that policies such as defund the police, abolish ICE, and reform the schools as the progressives want them reformed, and I could go on, uh, these issues are not winning issues for Democrats as the electorate is now configured. So I think a case is building for a rethinking, not of the economic issues, but of the cultural issues as part of the Democratic Party's overall stance. Uh, thank you. Ron Brownstein, respond to anything that you like, but I'd also be curious to hear your take on the economic issues. I do have a sense out there, maybe it's impressionistic, that there is still a, a great sort of digging in of heels about huge government spending, that that is an mm -hmm. element of the resistance that Biden's programs are facing. 
Well, I would say a couple things. First, you know, the entire framework of debate in the Democratic Party has shifted from the Clinton era in a way that reflects the changes in the coalition itself. The kind of the left-right choices on these cultural issues now are well to the left of what they were in the 90s as the society has changed in some respect. I mean, don't forget Clinton, you know, signed the Defense of Marriage Act mm-hmm. to allow states not to recognize gay marriages performed in other states. Um, I think the same is true on spending. You know, what, what the Democratic Party is debating today in terms of how much spending is okay is significantly more spending at the low end that Bill Clinton would have contemplated as being politically possible at the high end. I mean, if, if Joe Manchin really signed a piece of paper that said he would accept a $1.8 trillion 10-year reconciliation bill, that is a lot more new government activity than Clinton thought was feasible, even with the Democratic-controlled Congress in its first two years. So uh, we're talking about a genuine debate about how far to go, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the entire axis of that debate is different than it was when Bill wrote that and and I was uh, in the back of the hall covering the Cleveland Convention and Bill Clinton's speech, which was essentially his version of Bill and Elaine's uh, paper. Second point I would make is that while I do think that concern about Hispanics is what is really giving an audience to this line of argument that, that Democrats have to kind of think about whether they're going too far on cultural issues, it is not definitively proven by any means that culture is the principal problem that Democrats have been having in the near term with Hispanics. I mean, I think there is a lot of evidence that the biggest single issue in 2020 was not culture or immigration. There is enormous uh, desire for the economy to be open and operating. And I think there is a strong belief that uh, one reason why Trump did better than he did the first time is that he was seen as someone who would open the economy no matter what. And that had a real audience among Hispanics. And I think the Equus research has shown that among others. But the last and maybe the most important point, and one which I suppose cuts against what I have been saying so far, is the Biden presidency, I think, represents a half step in the direction of the critics in this regard. Biden's operative theory, I think, of the presidency is that if you mute discussion of all of these hot button cultural issues, if you push them to the back, to the margins of public attention, and focus overwhelmingly your effort and your public visibility on delivering material benefits to working class families, you know, shots in the arms, checks in the pockets, shovels in the ground, that if you mute culture and focus on kitchen table economics, that that is the way to win back blue collar voters of all races without shattering the democratic coalition over cultural issues. And I think the big debate going forward is essentially, is that enough? If you give a lot of working class white families healthcare and childcare subsidies and a child tax credit, can that overcome the pull of an openly, you know, racial identity message from Trump and those, you know, those Republicans who are, who are echoing Trump? There are those, I think Bill would probably fall into this category, Roy Teixeira, who say, no, that is not going to be enough, that you have to explicitly renounce kind of vanguard cultural liberalism, um, which Biden does not want to do. I don't think he wants to so far, you know, have that kind of sister soldier moment. He's trying to just kind of go the, put that on the low burner and put the, the economics on the front burner. So is that going to be enough 
to recover at least some ground. Because as Bill points out correctly, I think in the Trump era, it is unrealistic to think against the kind of messaging that Republicans are offering with this explicit appeal to white cultural and racial anxiety that you are going to gain a lot of ground back among culturally conservative working class white voters. But if you can gain a little and you can take what the defense is giving you in terms of better numbers among college whites and restore some of those numbers among people of color, that's probably enough. But I do think that's going to be the debate, Mona. Is it enough to be silent on these cultural issues or do you have to go out and basically say, I don't agree with portions of the party? But the other part of that is that is it even possible to mute these cultural issues? When you have the, the right. megaphone that the right has and the media complex on the right, they're elevating these cultural issues. It isn't as if Biden can make them go away simply by ignoring them. That's the counter argument. Yeah. Totally is the counter argument. Biden has not supported defunding the police. No. He wants to give the police more right. money. You know, he has affirmed that when asked. But he certainly has not gone out of his way at any point to kind of delineate his differences or to make a strength of his differences with the left. I mean, that has never been Joe Biden's style, right? I mean, he has never been someone like Clinton was in his heyday to draw a sharp line. He's been much more a creature of the Senate where he kind of looks at the four corners of Democratic opinion in the Senate and tries to kind of navigate a course pretty close uh, to the center of that. I think that is still his instinct as president. So those who want kind of a sister soldier moment, that is not something he is going to do, I think, very easily. Now, maybe the midterm will be bad enough that they feel like they have to do something like that, but that certainly has not been his instinct through his career. Right. And if it's not, it probably won't come across as sincere if he tries to do it. Okay, Bill, you wanted to comment. Just two points. Number one, if I'm permitted a sports analogy, not a lot of teams with great offense and no defense make it to the Super Bowl. And the argument that you can simply preserve radio silence on your weaknesses uh, strikes me as conceivable, but implausible. It's not a bet I'd want to take. The second point is a little bit more systemic. When Joe Biden ran for president, his campaign, and he in particular, sent two messages. Message number one was to the Democratic Party. I am going to govern from the center of the party. I am not going to be a factional leader, parenthesis like Bill Clinton. And that's why he put the party through the Unity Commission drill, which had a substantial impact not only on the Democratic Party platform, but also on the Biden agenda during the first year of his presidency. The second message was, I'm going to reunify the country. And the problem is, the more seriously you take the first of those messages, the harder it is to even look as though you're trying to do the second. And this is consequential in an era of party polarization, where the center of gravity of each party is farther away from the middle than it was in a period when the parties were less polarized. And so you are bound to weaken yourself among swing voters, independents, and moderates if you govern just from the center of your party. And that is exactly what has happened. Yeah, I think that's well said. Linda, you wanted to comment. Well, I do think that it's important. I think Bill's comments are, are important, but I would just say that it isn't just that Biden has not had a sister soldier moment. Many of his appointees, um, I think, are 
progressive. Uh, if you look at the Department of Education, the Office for Civil Rights, he's appointed people there who are very much of the progressive left on race issues, on questions having to do with uh, sexual harassment and assault. He has used the term equity, moving away from the traditional equal opportunity. Uh, these are very different concepts and require very different approaches to what government can and should do. And he's, you know, talked about issues like transgender issues. Again, these are issues that culturally divide America. So I, I think it's more than just that he has stayed silent. I think some of what Biden has done, and particularly in his appointments to federal office, have leaned more progressive than those in the center uh, would like. Okay. Let us now move on to a related but slightly different topic. So this week, Senator Joe Manchin, uh, who resides on the writer edge of the Democratic coalition, dropped a little nuclear bomb by saying that he would not support the president's Build Back Better plan. And he there, there's been a lot of speculation since then about whether he jumped or was pushed. Ron Brownstein, do you think the Democrats mishandled Manchin or was, or was it something else? I don't think they fundamentally mishandled Manchin. I think they, you know, the, he is the 50th vote. He has a lot of leverage. But if you are in a party the idea that your preference should outweigh essentially the preference of everyone else in the party is a lot to stomach. And I think they have certainly uh, bent over backwards to try to make this acceptable to him. If you go through the list of things they wanted to do, which may have been unrealistic to begin with, and, and I think there's a fair critique of that. Nonetheless, this has been reshaped to the specifications of Joe Manchin more than to any other single individual. Now, that doesn't mean he needs to accept the House version of this, which in one very important respect did ignore his repeated warnings that he didn't want kind of stop and start programs that would be jerry-rigged to reach a cost number. And there is a legitimate negotiation to be had about narrowing down what they are doing and doing it for longer. But that was a very doable negotiation. I mean, so I kind of look at what he did as an extension of his core political brand in West Virginia. I mean, from the very first race in the ad where he took out a rifle and shot at the cap and trade bill, his identity is as the sensible centrist Democrat who says no to all the crazy liberal Democrats. And I think he has been working himself up toward a big moment where he could send that message as loudly as he could. And obviously going on Fox amplifies uh, that. And so now the question is, now that he has gotten that headline, which he wanted, does he see it as in his interest to kill the whole thing? Or uh, could he have his cake and eat it too, in that he could have the headlines of how he said no to the Democrats, but then he could also spend the next two years going to openings of things around West Virginia that will be funded with the money from a completed Build Back Better. I don't pretend to know the answer, but my guess is it would make sense for him at this point, having sent the first message to, in fact, get the benefits of, of completing a bill. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, Damon... One aspect of Manchin's critique that Ron mentioned, and that a lot of people think is 
quite legitimate. Whatever games there may have been played behind the scenes, and there have been claims of bad faith and so forth, making promises and then backing away, who knows? But one thing that that Manchin did stress is that he didn't like the fact that the Democratic bill, rather than make decisions, and you know, the expression is to govern is to choose. And the Democrats, rather than saying, okay, if we can't have everything, we will we'll focus on one big thing, say like on the child tax credit. Instead, they said, well, we're still going to have everything, but it's going to expire in a year or two years. And that arguably is bad governing. And not only that, it's not even politically smart because the Democrats, if they put it in as something that will expire and the Republicans are in control, the Republicans are not going to have any problem just allowing it to expire. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, on this issue, at least, I'm on Team Manchin. Now, I will concede that the way he went about announcing his final refusal to go along with the current Well, it isn't even a current bill because the Senate is still working on drafting it. But the way it seemed to be coming together, he announced he was going to oppose it. Uh, The way he did it was was kind of crappy and, and very much, as Ron was indicating, kind of, I think, playing to the sensibilities of his home voters in West Virginia and trying to stick it to the party a little bit going on Fox News. And there was really no tone of uh, conciliation at all that like, yes, I would like this to work, but unfortunately, it was very much a kind of contemptuous dismissal of it and making it seem as if he'd been screwed around with by Biden and the administration. That was kind of uncalled for and irritating. But now that hopefully tempers have have cooled slightly, I do think it is worth the party and especially the administration to sit down and face the substance of his critique, which I do think, as you summarized, Mona, is and Ron did too, I think is is a valid point. The fact is that the Democratic Party is a fractious coalition of interest groups to a large extent. And this bill, as originally crafted in the House, was sort of designed to placate about a dozen of these groups to give everybody a little something. And then once Manchin insisted that it be more around 1.5 to 2 trillion rather than 3.5 trillion, that presented a sort of either or choice. Either we do three or four things and make them permanent, defined as at least 10 years in length, or we do the same dozen things, but go through this weird flim-flam bookkeeping magic exercise of, of having some of them sunset in a certain number of years and other ones in other years and a few of them permanent. That, that really, as you indicated, Mona, is not a great way to do policy. In a way, it's a pretty cynical way, too, because it's sort of motivated by, well, The voters will like these things. And then even though the Republicans might have control of Congress when they expire, we'll then be able to use that to bash the Republicans for letting them sunset. And so in the end, we'll earn more votes later and be able to pass a new bill later based on the fact that these are going to expire and the Republicans won't renew them and then we can bash them over it. It's like too clever by half. It would be much, much better to pick 
three or four things from the original bill and really fund them and make them good and to run on them and to tell the American people, look what we've done for you. These are new programs that will help you in your lives in all kinds of ways. And they they haven't done that yet. I do hope they do. The one caveat I would add to that is that one of the items of the bill that I liked the most, the child tax credit, is too expensive to fit within the $1.8 trillion window in really any of its current forms. And so that one is a problem. I would love to see them be able to extend that beyond the, the one year. I don't know if it can be done. I, I think maybe it could be possible if they basically took it out of the Build Back Better bill, but then immediately announced a separate package, perhaps in negotiation with Romney, who had his own version of the child tax credit that I thought was actually quite good. It should be possible to bring maybe Romney and maybe Rubio and and a few other Republicans over to the White House to sit down with Biden and his advisors and hash out a new child tax credit separate from the Build Back Better and try to, to get that passed separately. So that would be my advice on how to proceed. I do think they will pass something, and my hope is that Manchin's kind of refusal to go along with uh, the other version of the bill will end up in the long run being better for the whole thing, for the party and for the country. Linda, Manchin took a lot of abuse at the hands of protesters and activists. They surrounded his houseboat for three days running in kayaks, and they apparently made life kind of difficult for him and his family. They surrounded him in a parking garage, and then when he attempted to move his car, they claimed that he was trying to run them over. This was a a feature of his life for the last few months, and I've got to say, it sounds as if he really had had it. He gave an interview to a West Virginia radio station where he said, this is the thinking of the other side. Surely we can get enough protesters to make that person, meaning himself, uncomfortable enough that they'll just say, okay, I'll vote for anything. Just quit. Guess what? I'm from West Virginia. I'm not from where they're from, where you can beat the living crap out of people and they'll be submissive. Maybe that was insincere. It struck me as genuine. What What do you think? Oh, it strikes me as quite genuine. Look, uh, Joe Manchin isn't up for re-election for a while. He's going to serve till 2024, so he's got a few years before he has to face election. But I think the progressives better look at the map. Joe Manchin is as good as the Democrats are going to get from West Virginia. I mean, you just have to look at what happened in the last election, how big the victory was for former President Trump. So, you know, I I find this more than annoying. I think it's very self-defeating. I think it makes it very, very difficult for anyone who is slightly more to the center in the Democratic Party. So I think they're cutting off their nose to spite their face if they continue to take on Joe Manchin. Now, of course, I also happen to agree with Joe Manchin that the bill is too big. I don't like these huge omnibus spending bill. We've thrown a lot of money into the economy. And, uh, you know, it is not clear to me that that Democrats broadly, uh, certainly not those who vote for Joe Manchin in West Virginia, are going to support that kind of spending. And I don't think it's necessarily in the interests of the country that we have these huge, massive government spending bills. That money often is sucked out of the private sector and into the public sector and the public sector 
as we know, is not as efficient in spending money. So I'm on Joe Manchin's side on this. Bill Galston, in 2020, Donald Trump won West Virginia by a larger margin than he won Alabama or Louisiana or Texas or Utah. In fact, he won West Virginia by a larger percentage of the vote than any other state, with one exception, that was Wyoming, and there are only 17 people who live in Wyoming, so that was quite something. Um, I'm just amazed that Democrats aren't just you know, getting down on their knees every day and thanking God that they have a Democratic senator in West Virginia. W- what's wrong with that analysis? <laughs> uh most of them don't thank God for anything. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's wrong. But, <laughs> also, also, Bill, if you wouldn't mind also, please also address the question about uh, this, the child tax credit and the Romney plan, and, and because you wrote about that this week, and I'd love to hear you on that as well. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm not going to go into details because that would lose everybody in okay. the weeds, but let me just give you my general take on this. First of all, I think everyone realizes that they're better off getting some version of the Build Back Better bill through than no version. I say everyone, I mean all the Democrats. And for that reason, I believe that there will ultimately be a compromise, at least a compromise enough to get it through the Senate. And then a bunch of people in the House, in the Progressive Caucus, are going to face a moment of truth. Are they willing to take the Senate yes for an answer, or are they going to vent their disappointment? That's point number one. Point number two, and here I echo what a lot of others are saying, the Democrats last August faced a fork in the road, and in my judgment, they took the wrong fork. Once the budget bill had passed, the new Democratic coalition in the House of Representatives put out a very reasoned statement to the effect uh, that we have a choice between doing fewer things but doing them well and fully funding them and the strategy of trying to accommodate everybody just for a few years. Reportedly, Speaker Pelosi was very sympathetic to that argument, but the Progressive Caucus overruled her and she felt she had no choice but to go along. And the House bill was the overripe fruit of that decision to go along. Like a number of others, I think that Manchin was right to dig in his heels on that point. But it is not the case that you can't accommodate 10 years of a fully funded child tax credit within the contours of the $1.8 trillion over 10 years that Senator Manchin reportedly has been willing to spend. What you have to do is trim the child tax credit to a degree so that it is still a very substantial improvement on the baseline, but not as big an improvement as the Biden administration and House Democrats are calling for. But you could do that in such a way that the most important effect of the long-term child tax credit, namely the sharp reduction in child poverty, could be carried out at a lower cost. 
And I could go into the details of policy design, but a number of people have put out proposals to that effect. Ben Ritz, who heads up the budget program at the Progressive Policy Institute, has put out a sensible proposal, although I think my idea is better than his, but that's a different debate, in the context of an overall approach to the $1.8 trillion Build Back Better bill that would include about four items that were fully funded for the entire 10-year budget window. This is not mission impossible, but Democrats, if they're going to get this to the finish line, finally have to do what they have refused to do up to now, and that is establish priorities and make choices. And ultimately, that's up to President Biden to bring the party to that reality. Mona? Yes. Can, can I add one thing? Please. The curveball in all of this is whether these concerns about the social policy programs and inflation and uh, the overall cost is really the root of Manchin's objection at this point. I mean, because it is also possible that he has simply reached a conclusion that he will not and cannot support the climate initiatives that are attached to this and everything else is kind of dust mm -hmm. around that. So we don't know. I mean, I agree with Bill and Damon that if, if, if it's a question of finding a way to do this on the social policy side that Manchin can accept, Democrats would be crazy not to do that. I mean, this is a very large amount of money that on paper he says he's willing to support. And I completely agree with Damon that the child tax credit is the logical thing to move out of the package for a standalone vote on its own, maybe in reconciliation next year, as Adam Jentleson has, has proposed, a, a short-term extension to get you to a vote next year in which you could find a different funding source for it. You could, you could pose a child tax credit against an increase in the top rate, which Cinema has said no to so far. Not Manchin, by the way. Important to note, Manchin is willing to raise the corporate rate and the top rate. It's Cinema who won't. So there are lots of ways to make this work on the social policy side if he wants to get to a deal. And if he doesn't want to get to a deal, either because he thinks it's in his political interest to kill it entirely, or because he has ultimately decided as the senator from the big coal state, he cannot sign on to the green energy provisions, then there is no deal to be had. Okay. Bill Galston, last quick word. Very quickly. First of all, it has been reported that Manchin was not completely uncomfortable with the clean energy package as it had been negotiated with Biden. Uh, and that should be tested. But number two, I'm trying to figure out what gives the Adam Gentlesons of this world any confidence that Democrats will be able to control the fate of the child tax credit in 2023. I think the odds are very much to the contrary. If they want a long-term child tax credit that's better than the one that now exists, this is their chance. Okay, let us now move on to our final segment. And we will now turn to our highlight or low light of the week. Ron Brownstein, let's start with you. Oh, you're giving me an easy week. Uh, Joe Manchin <laughs> blowing up the Democratic agenda is both the highlight and low light of the week. As Bill says, it, it could be the pathway toward a bill that is ultimately more sustainable, both in a policy sense and politically. Uh, but it could also be that he has decided that it is in his interest to 
essentially undermine the Biden presidency, in which case it is the beginning of a year of chaos for Democrats that concludes in a very, very bad midterm. Uh, Right. Uh, Okay. Linda Chavez. Well, uh, I have a highlight for the week, uh, and it comes from an unlikely source, at least an unlikely source for me to be reading, and that is from The Forward, the uh, daily English version of the formerly Yiddish newspaper. And the article is entitled, Why Do Jews Eat Chinese Food on Christmas? <laughs> this has been a burning question in my mind since more than 50 years ago when I joined my husband's Jewish family with uh, deep New York roots. And I found the piece absolutely fascinating, including the opening, which apparently this is a joke that goes around on Jewish Facebook. The Chinese Restaurant Association of the United States would like to extend our thanks to the Jewish people. (laughs) We do not completely understand your dietary (laughs) customs, but we are proud and grateful that your God insists you eat our food on Christmas. And it does go back. Uh, Apparently this tradition, I would have thought it went back maybe to the 1930s or something. Now it goes way back into the late 19th century uh, in Manhattan, where Jews were alongside Chinese immigrants and Italian immigrants. And Jews apparently preferred the Chinese food in part because the restaurants there were not decorated with crushes and other (laughs) Christian symbols. Anyway, it's a delightful article, goes into a lot of history, and I recommend it to our listeners. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Uh, As a Jew myself, I would say that uh, the reason we eat Chinese food on Christmas, there are two reasons. One, the Chinese restaurants were always the only ones that were open. And two, we love Chinese food. (laughs) So that's basically my view. Okay, Damon Linker. Okay, well, um, I do sometimes say some positive things and uh, spread good cheer with this part of the podcast, but I will not be doing that today. I also will be using a bad word. So uh, if our producers choose to uh, bleep me out, I'm giving you fair warning now. Get ready with that button. These are actually two items that I would call uh, lowlights and very shameful things, actually. Uh, The first is that I have some family uh, who lives in in Ohio, eastern of rural Ohio, and they have told me that within the last month or so has become common to see flags flying outside of homes that read, fuck Biden, and underneath written, and fuck you for voting for him. I posted this on Twitter a few hours ago, and a number of people who uh, live throughout the Midwest have responded and confirmed, yeah, I see those outside of Cincinnati, near Columbus, in Michigan. So this is apparently a a new thing, and I think it's a pretty bad sign uh, for civility, perhaps. Yes, civility and uh, the future, again, of the question of what becomes of the Republican Party with Trump or after Trump. You know, maybe you could say this is actually a good sign because they're actually admitting that some people voted for Biden. <laughs> so maybe we're slowly moving. This is this is now the, the, the next stage of overcoming their trauma. But uh, it's still disheartening, nevertheless. And now on the other side, my congressional representative, Mary Gay Scanlon, was carjacked on Wednesday of this week at gunpoint in Philadelphia. One more sign of surging crime rates in American cities. The city of Philadelphia has so far, with about a week or so left in the year, 
suffered 545 homicides, which is 45 more than the previous highest year, which was back in 1990. That's so far 9% higher above that very sad record uh, of just over uh, 30 years ago. So, you know, the country, as we turn the corner into a new year, we have some work to do, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and happy holidays. (laughs) Okay, thank you for that. Uh, Bill Galston. Yes. Uh, Before I turn to my low light, which is the exact opposite of Ron Brownstein's, let me just comment on Damon's last low light. And that is, you know, Philadelphia's prosecutor, city prosecutor, has been claiming through the fall that there is no crime surge in Philadelphia. And he finally had to back off that and up apologize to the people of Philadelphia (laughs) for having minimized the fear uh, that they're going through because of the murder statistics that Damon cited and other examples of the breakdown of law and order in the city of Philadelphia. So not a good time for woke prosecutors. Okay, here's my low light. The 712-word statement that the White House put out in response to Joe Manchin's appearance on Fox News. If you need someone to be your 50th vote, probably (laughs) the best strategy is not accusing him of having lied to the president of the United States, which is basically what the White House statement said. Mm -hmm. I think it's entirely likely that Joe Manchin got angry, not only because of the kayak surrounding his houseboat, but also because of leaks from the White House in the days running up to his announcement. The job of the President of the United States is to be the famous saucer that cools the hot tea. And if, as appears to be the case, that statement was personally approved by the president before it went out, I think it was very ill-judged and an angry response to an angry man, which is not what the president of the United States needs to be doing. 100% agree. Um, Abraham Lincoln, after he wrote an angry letter, he used to slide it into his desk drawer and look at it again the next morning. The current president should take a note. All right. Well, I would like to present a highlight since that's something I don't often do, but I have some words of praise for the Women's Tennis Association, which in the matter of Peng Shui has stood firm against the vicious regime in Beijing. This week, they issued this horrible sort of hostage statement from her where where she said that she retracted her accusation of abuse and sexual harassment by a leading Chinese official. And she said that there was a misunderstanding about all that. This was after she's been incommunicado for many weeks and that, you know, she didn't accuse anybody of anything. Well, the Women's Tennis Association, to its credit, says it is totally not satisfied with this and uh, is going to continue its policy of not holding any tennis tournaments in China until they get satisfaction on this point. And I have to say, this is in stark contrast, the principal position that the Women's Tennis Association is taking stands in stark contrast to 
behavior that we have seen from all too many American businesses and institutions like the National Basketball Association, which has truckled to China, and the movie makers, the big film studios who have been self-censoring like crazy so as not to offend the Chinese censors. So bravo to the Women's Tennis Association, and I want to just put that on the record. Now, we are going to be taking a break for one week. After this, we want to wish everybody a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And whatever holidays that you celebrate, we wish you have happy holidays. And I also just want to thank Ron Brownstein for joining us. And thank you all for listening. And we will see you again in 2022.